0: Uh, so my name is Tony, I'm pastor here. So if you are here because of the children that just sang, or maybe you're, you're just visiting this morning, you're like, oh, there's a lot of children on stage. Doesn't happen every week, just to let you know. Um, but we're glad you're here, and, uh, and I hope that you will uh, want to come and be a part of this Christmas season with us. Uh, and so speaking of that, on Christmas Eve, uh, which is a Sunday this year, we have three services that we are doing that day. And they are all the Christmas Eve service, and it's at 11 a.m. And then we also have 3 o'clock and 4.30. And so our normal schedule for Sunday will be replaced by that schedule. So again, 11 a.m., 3 o'clock, and 4.30 in the afternoon. And what we need from you, if you are planning to attend uh, one of those services, we would like for you to sign up for tickets either by going to the the main counter connection area, which is over by our baptistry through those doors off to the right. Uh, Or you can go online and reserve tickets for one of the special services that day. The reason for that is the attendance will be rather significant, and if everybody showed up at the same exact service, we would not be able to get everybody in the door, let alone the parking lot. So uh, with that being said, it just helps us uh, when you reserve space for one of those services. We don't collect tickets at the door. Uh, We only provide tickets for about 80% of the space, so then that way people can show up that night that we're not aware of the tickets opportunity and can still get in the room. And so by you doing that, your part, that helps us be able to welcome uh, as many people as possible on that day. Uh, Also, uh, we aren't doing this service as normal as as we typically would, but I just want to acknowledge that that this is an opportunity for us to say as part of our worship, we we do offer our tithes and our offerings. And so there are many ways to give. We have boxes that are in the back on your way out the door, uh, but also we have, uh, you can text, you can also go to our website. And we only encourage this of those who call this their home church. If you would like, if you're a visitor, if you want to give, that's on you, but uh, we just think that that's something that, as if this is your church, we we would encourage you uh, to give to that end. This is also a special season where we're asking people to give above and beyond their tithe uh, to be able to help us add some parking in the spring, and so uh, this morning you would have probably discovered a little bit of our challenges on that. Uh, We hope to add about 150 parking spaces that would enable us to have less issues on Sunday morning. And additionally, uh, we're adding some children's space. So you saw a segment of our children's ministry uh, here this morning uh, with about a little over 100 children here. But uh, we have, you know, over 300 children that are here on a Sunday uh, each week, and we are needing more space for them. So um, we'll be getting more into that as we get closer to May when we have a congregational meeting. So with that being said, uh, now it's time to look to the Word of God. Uh, we're in a series in the book of Genesis. And so if you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers would be glad to provide you one uh, right now. They're just coming up the aisle. Just put your hand up and they will provide you one. Or if you have downloaded on your, your uh, smartphone the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, you can go into that. Select events and the events tab, and then you'll find LEFC as one of the churches in there, and you can tap on that, and you'll get all the scripture we'll be using this morning. So to give a little context uh, to that, uh, we are going to be in Genesis 17, and this particular text is connected to where we've been over the last few weeks. So for the sake of you who are visiting today or haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, we've been studying in Genesis uh, because we believe Genesis helps us understand why we need Jesus. Why the story of Jesus? Why celebrating Christmas? Why acknowledging Easter? Why do we do that? It's because there was a a narrative that was established early on in the book of Genesis that helps us understand the creator God created you and I to have a relationship with him. But then that brokenness in the garden created an opportunity for God to say, In order for me to have a relationship with you, I need to be able to provide for you. And so the story of Genesis helps us understand that provision. But we've been talking about covenants over the last few weeks. And so about three weeks ago, that term came up and covenants have a lot of bearing when those covenants are between us and God. And last week in particular, we looked at how there was a covenant God established with Ishmael which would end up being the firstborn son of Abraham. And Ishmael was not a case of where it was God's desire for Ishmael to go first. No, that was a situation where Abraham and Sarah were being faithful and obedient, going to the promised land, uh, to the land of Canaan, knowing that they were being told that they were going to be made into a great nation and that all nations of earth would be blessed by them. But they had been in the land for 10 years and still no child. And so, instead of seeking the Lord as to why that's the case, they decide to make their own plan and have a child by their servant, uh, Hagar. And that child, Ishmael, uh, ends up receiving a covenant from God, a blessing from God, but as part of that blessing, it was stated that he would have, the peoples of the earth would be against him and he would be against them, but in particular, that he would have hostility towards his brothers. And so the hostility you see, even today, between Hamas and Israel is a part of covenants that are at play, Uh, because Ishmael's descendants are all the Arabs on the southern part of the Promised Land and down into the Arabian Peninsula. And so what you see in conflict this very day going on is the result of two covenants that God has established. That would say there is going to be conflict. There's going to be hostility. And so how her approach to this as we looked at last week is we are called to bless Israel but we are also called to pray for peace and that peace only comes by the message of the gospel. So we pray for peace for both the Jew and the Palestinian that they would find that in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so that is our prayer. But going forward... We have to continue to understand these covenants a little bit more, so we're going to dive into them today. And I've asked some friends of ours from our church here, uh, Bill and Ann Fisher, to be reading our scripture out of Genesis 17.
1: Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come... Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant.
2: God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him.
1: On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old, When he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13 and Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner was circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So, the word of the
0: morning circumcision. <laughs> it's not going to be the, the word that we focus in on, but to speak to what it re- implies and what it means. You know, I kind of had, was a little nervous when I was realizing the schedule of our series coinciding where there's going to be a lot of guests and that, that may have not heard where we've been in this series to then have all these children in the room and we're going to talk about this subject. Um, but let me just uh, ease your, your mind right now. We are not going to talk about what circumcision is in the sense of the physical realm. We're not going to describe or coach how it's to be done. And all I got to say is praise the Lord that is not my job like the priests of old. Um, so, although I did have a couple doctors come up to me and say to this morning and say, "But it is our job." And so, uh, so for the doctors in the room that still have that job, God bless you. That, uh, with that being said, what we learn from this particular text is that there is a lot going on when God sends people out to do something based on a prompting of the Lord or a direction from the Lord when they step out in faith, that there is always some aspect of the journey that becomes a challenge and that it gets tested. Are you going to be faithful? And so when you look at the aspect of the covenants, because this is not the first time that God has spoken that he's making a covenant with Abraham, but this is where it's getting more description uh, to how it's going to play out. But God makes very clear that with covenants, he has an expectation. And that expectation is that, that it's a covenant relationship based on faithfulness that when anybody goes into a covenantal relationship with God or a covenant, covenantal relationship with another person, it is established as being that you are required by, to be faithful in that covenant. When you look at verse 1 and to verse 2, it says, it says, I am God Almighty, which is El Shaddai in Hebrew. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully, and blamelessly, then I will make between me and you a covenant. I'll make the covenant between you and me, and you will greatly increase in number. So, with that in this text, what you see here is that God is saying that, okay, I've established this covenant with you. My requirement of you is to be faithful to it, and to be faithful always till your final breath. And that God, as a covenantal God expects that when you make covenant between him and you, that you will be faithful like he is faithful. And that God expects that you treat covenants between him similarly with where you treat human being uh, covenants between you and others. In fact, if we take lightly human covenant, then we'll take lightly a divine covenant. And God understands that that's a pattern that you and I have, is that we tend to want to minimize human covenants and try to lower it because we don't like absolutes. I mean, think about all the covenants that we make today. We take away the word covenant. And then we say, we call them contracts. And then with the contract, what you see is there's a place to sign, and then you uh, have a lot of small print. Because it knows, for, it knows that in contracts that the human uh, instinct and uh, in default is to find the loopholes in every contract. Which is why when we sign things, there is a lot of fine print to make sure you know there are no loopholes. That you understand fully what you are signing. So we sign. But then not only that. There's such a concern for human dynamics that when we sign that we argue away uh, our signing that we then include notaries. Notaries then ask you a couple questions to make sure you understand what you're signing. Making sure that it is indeed your signature and that you're of good mind and that you are indeed the person signing it. And then they can give their seal. They imprint it upon uh, that document. It's signed. It's now official. You are now contracted with whatever individual you're contracting with covenants are often established outside of written paper they're usually built on just the word but it's exalted it's high because covenant is a divine term it's something God gives that says when you make when I make covenant with you I expect covenant back so I'm going to be faithful to this covenant as I expect you to be faithful to the covenant with me so Jesus, in talking about such covenants, he speaks in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, when you come into agreement with someone, your word should be of such value that all you need to do is say the word yes and that's sufficient. No qualifications of it, no small print, no need for a notary that if you say yes, your yes is yes. The same with no. If you say no, your word of no means no. No qualifications needed. No small print needed to be added. No need for sealing it by some type of notary. God expects that type of relationship with each other. That when we say yes to each other or we say no to each other, that our words count. But where we still use the term covenant and regularly so, is in the wedding ceremony. Think about it. When you are taking those vows, which, again, Jesus speaks the vows. Let your yeses be yeses and your noes noes. You shouldn't need to take a vow in order to qualify yourself. But if you do, you better own the vow because God will be looking upon you to make sure you own your human vows. But when we take on the vow between husband and wife, you hear that sound of like, It's final. There is a covenant being established. And the call to faithfulness on both people's parts is as faithful an expectation as God has for himself. That he expects of you. That when you covenant with another human being, a man and a woman, when they come into that marital relationship, that covenant in God's eyes is to never be broken. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19 verse 6, what God has put together, let no man No human being separate. So that's the level of covenantal expectation that God has when we take vows with one another. And furthermore, when we take vows with him. Because when he covenants with us, he is all in. There is no qualification needed. His yes is yes and his no is no. So, he establishes this with Abraham here at the beginning, again stating, I will make my covenant with you. This covenant will be good. And you need to be faithful in response. And then you see in the text, God begins to change names. All right? So, whenever God changes a human being's name or supplies a name to be given to a child, the name communicates a plan. So when you see Abram, which means exalted father, and it's changed to Abraham, which means father of many, there is something being said there. That clearly this covenant, God's saying, I'm going to make you, again, a nation, and you're going to bless all nations. He is saying now, I am establishing it with more clarity that others will even know that this covenant with you by me changing your name. You're going to be the father of many. Now, at this point, he has one, one son. And we know that God has already established that Ishmael will be the father of 12. And so you can make the case that this has already happened. But God's going to communicate a much stronger plan than what comes through Ishmael. So he then begins to talk to Sarai, his wife. Sarai, your name, which means Princess, which would be more in the form of a singular household, so if you are a male in this room and you're a husband and you have a wife uh, that you are married to, and you can say to her, "You are my princess, you are my Sarah, that would be accurate, but that would be unique to you being able to say when well, I mean Sarah, that would be the same name for Sarah, but to say Sarah is to say. She is the princess of many. There are no restrictions to the form of Sarah. Sarai, singular household. Sarah, many. So now, God's communicating something through that. Because what he's saying is, Sarai is now going to be Sarah, princess of many. She too is going to be mother. Not through Hagar, and not over Ishmael, but rather through her own son. And this son, will be Isaac. And you see in, when Isaac's name's given, it's communicating something as well. Because when Abraham's receiving this, this word that at age 99, when he's hearing this word, and Sarah at the time being 90, they're being told, the two of you are going to parent and have a child. A child's going to be conceived of the two of you. And you see immediately great reverence on Abraham's part. And he goes to his knees to laugh. Because it's like, this is impossible. This was so unbelievable to him that he had to go to his knees and just laugh. And Sarah, too, laughed because how is this possible that, to, that, that a 90-year-old woman with a 99-year-old husband, that she is going to be able to bear a child and give birth to a child? I mean, that just seems impossible. But with God, all things can become possible. And so what did God do? You're going to have a child about a year from now at this same time, and you are going to name that child Isaac, which means He laughs. So from this point on, every time they use their child's name, they're going to be reminded of how they responded to God's word. Isaac, stop doing that. Oh, yeah. I didn't respond to God's word with full belief either. Isaac, come here. And the laughter reminder of the moment when they were told that 99 and 90 would be constant Because it drew them back to the very moment when God said, you will have a child. So let's talk about Isaac as as the covenant goes on. Because God says in verse 7 and 8 that he's going to make a covenant. The covenant that he's giving to Abraham is going to go through Isaac. So here's where it says in verse 7. It says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where now you reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be your God. All right, so important language is being used there. Now, this term everlasting really stands out to me from a verse that I grew up memorized out of. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have, if you go King James Version, everlasting life. It's speaking to eternity. So when you see this here, it's a similar Hebrew term where it says that I'm going to make a covenant with you that will go into eternity. That it will go beyond this life but into eternity. So, How is this even possible that this covenant that is being made here is saying this is going to be an eternal covenant and the land that you are on is going to be an eternal possession? Well, how is that possible? Well, for those of us that now live on this side of the cross, we can now see that through all the covenants that were established, that yes, even through the Davidic covenant, through him and through Solomon, and eventually a Messiah will come, and this Messiah Jesus was born of, of divine seed And therefore, born without sin, and then comes into this world, lives as what Adam was supposed to live as, but didn't. He now makes it right, and then takes on the penalty that was due to Adam and all of Adam's descendants, and took it upon himself, thus becoming the perfect lamb, which we've talked about already in Genesis. He became the perfect lamb where his blood is a once and for all sacrifice. But what's the promise that Jesus offers through faith in that gift, in that act? It's eternal life. And so what you see here is the eternal covenant being established with Abraham is that this covenant of blessing will go from this life into eternity. And that will happen through the eternal one, Jesus Christ. And that's an incredible understanding that we now gain by going back to the beginning to understand where this idea of eternal life even comes from. And then secondly, you've got the land. How is the land a part of an eternal possession? Well, if you study in the eschatology side of things, or in other words, end times, you'll know that there's gonna come at the end, in the book of Revelation, it talks about that God's gonna wipe everything clean, but he's gonna establish a... New Jerusalem, and it says the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven where God's been preparing it for his bride, and it's going to be a beautiful new city, and he's going to establish it here on this earth. And I'm pretty confident that you can look from Scripture. He's gonna establish it where the old Jerusalem used to be. Therefore, making the land of Canaan an eternal possession, part of the blessing that has come through Abraham into eternity, most everything else ends at that point but not what is the blessing of God that comes to the covenant of Abraham. It goes beyond. And this is so important for us to understand that God's covenants are established and he will be faithful to them. And then when he says something like everlasting, you can guarantee it will happen. Even though our minds may not fully understand it or appreciate it, God will bring it to fruition. And for those of us that understand Jesus, we get it. It's like, now we understand how these covenants can become everlasting. But let's continue on. So God's communicated uh, that he expects faithfulness from us in these covenants. And so he said this to Abraham. You've got to be faithful. I want you to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. But I want you to be faithful to this. There are I want your yeses to be yeses. I want your noes to be noes. I want you to be true at your word. And I want you to live this out. But I want to give you reminders I want to seal this covenant where you are reminded that you are called into a covenantal relationship with me. Which is then when he gives the act of circumcision. But we need to understand that when he gives that act, he is saying that covenants are usually sealed by a sign as testimony of absolute submission to its demands. Let me say that again. Covenants are sealed usually by a sign as a testimony of absolute submission to its demands. So God wants to seal this covenant with Abraham. He wants to give something to them that it will then create an absolute submission, a a heart commitment to something that had been established between him and God. Now why is this idea of circumcision important then as a means of sealing? Because it's true that it doesn't take long for one generation to the next that the generation that comes after forgets the lessons learned by the generation before. Look at our own country as an example. For the generations that that were a part of the revolution the the war for independence when when you look at the the the, what, the cost given to become a nation those generations that were so close to that were so committed to that union and then when slavery became a divisive point so much more blood was spilt so that this nation can be, can be continued to go on with the ideals that are established in the Constitution. And, and so people were then very committed to that. But as generations get away from these major conflicts, the commitment and the appreciation gets lesser and lesser because the cost has been nil on their part. Today, the amount of commitment to us as a nation – by our own citizens, people that were born here, is probably at an all-time low. Because again, when, you've co- when it's cost you nothing, why are you in? So too. That's a human dynamic. That's not unique to the United States. It's a human dynamic. The book of Deuteronomy, you could summarize its purpose by this. They have just spent all these years in Egypt becoming a bigger and powerful nation. Now they're transitioning from that nation of Egypt into the promised land. And for 40 years, they're in the desert because of unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. And so God makes them wait, but they learn a lot of things in that wilderness. And then God gives the book of Deuteronomy to prepare them to go into the promised land, but specifically to prepare the generations that did not learn the lessons of the desert. Very specifically, God gives what he gives in the book of Deuteronomy to help those who were not alive in the desert, who are yet to be born, to know the things that their grandparents had learned in that desert so that they will not be forgotten. So too are these covenants when they are sealed by some kind of sign. It is a teaching moment to make sure it's never forgotten why we do this. And where this covenant comes from, it's a new opportunity to teach the covenant anew with the next generation so that they will never forget what covenant they are under. That's what circumcision's about. On the eighth day when a Jewish child uh, has been born, on their eighth day, that circumcision happens for that male child. And it's a moment of that parent to be able to say, we acknowledge the covenant with Yahweh, with God. And we will raise this child to know who Yahweh is and to serve him relationally. And that this mark is our covenant with God to show that we are in submission to that covenant. But true, even in Israel, the idea of circumcision goes and often it's just a physical act with the heart far from what it means. And so when God desires to have a covenant with a, re, a covenantal relationship with you and I, he wants this to be something where it's not just physical, it's spiritual. It's the depth of your being. I want to read something out of Romans chapter 2 and it will be on your screens. Look at how the apostle Paul speaks about circumcision when when many of the peers, his Hebrew peers in his day were simply just saying we're right with God because we circumcised ourselves and our children. And he says it's not just a physical act. So here's what he says. The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law. ...will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by just the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people but from God. So Paul says this, there is nothing magical about the physical act of circumcision that, circumcision that somehow, that if you've circumcised your child or you yourself are circumcised, that all of a sudden, you have greater favor than somebody who is not circumcised. No. He says, the one who obeys me, the one who is faithful to me, they understand what the heart of the matter is. It's the circumcision of the heart that matters. The physical part of circumcision is the reminder to the heart. It's not in and of itself the rightfulness or righteousness of God. It is the reminder that our heart is yielding to a greater covenant with God. So wholehearted obedience to the Lord and faithfulness to the Lord is what the Lord is looking for. And circumcision is the reminder that we're in that covenantal relationship. So then, how do we speak of these things as Gentiles? Or, how do we speak of these things post the cross? Because there's no uh, primary uh, overriding drive that as Gentiles come to faith that they must all of a sudden be uh, circumcised. So what is going on that we need to respond? How do we respond to God's covenants today? Ephesians chapter 1 speaks to this. In verses 13 to 15. And it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your, our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory. So in Christ, God marks those who are His with the Holy Spirit. This idea of possession is a pretty significant thing even in society today. Going back to the wedding ceremony. After the vows are taken, which again, God says, if you vowed to marry someone, you have committed yourself to being faithful to that individual for a lifetime. And look at how even people in the Christian church try to create all kinds of new reasons why you can break that vow. And only by the hardness of heart did God even allow for divorce to happen because he knows that our hearts get so solidified in animosity towards those we've taken vows with. But in that vow... When we take it before other people, the next thing that happens in the wedding ceremony is the question from the pastor when they ask. So with what symbol will you seal these vows? And that's usually where the response of a ring comes into play. The ring is meant to have no beginning and no end. It's constant. And so by putting that ring on the finger, you are betrothing to each other saying, I belong to him and she belongs to me. And I belong to her. That that possession of each other. They become one. And they seal it together. And it's a testimony that when they go out in society. That when somebody sees a ring. They know they have covenanted with somebody else. They are not available. They are not available for courtship any longer. They are betrothed. They are committed. They are covenanted with someone else. So in the same way. When we become a believer in Jesus Christ, we become committed, we become betrothed to him. And I believe that there are are four things that I think happen in this moment at the point where faith gives us new birth and life in Christ. Because when we believe and we trust in him and his work done on the cross, then he gives us this Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 1, and marks us and seals us as there's now a new covenant established with us that we now, first thing being, we belong to him. That when he puts his Holy Spirit on us as a seal, it says it becomes a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon us upon faith, God says, You're now mine. You're now mine. And that's a good thing to establish. That's like finding that person that you're going to do life with for the rest of your life. And you take on those vows of marriage. And that's a beautiful thing. But when we come into faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we then covenant with him. And we belong to him. And we are his possession. And in this text, it also says it solidifies our future. When we come into a covenant relationship with him, we come into an eternal and everlasting covenant as it is with Abraham. So we join in Abraham's covenant of everlasting commitment. So that when we come into that relationship, that when this life ends for us, it continues on. Because we have life in Jesus. We have eternal life in him. And so that spirit being upon us when we come before God, the spirit's marking of us says we get entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We are his possession. We belong to him. And so therefore, it solidifies our future. But then there's another aspect to this that's beautiful. We know that Satan and his kingdom is live and active today. And And Satan can see the spiritual realm and the physical realm. We can see evidences of the spiritual realm, but we primarily see the physical realm. So when Satan sees somebody marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit, he knows that you are God's possession. And therefore, there is a severe limitation as to what he can do to harm you and hinder you. Without that seal and promised Holy Spirit, you are are extremely vulnerable to the work of Satan around you and to you and in you. But as soon as you become God's possession and you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you are now God's possession and that is off limits to Satan's kingdom. And that is comforting. So not only are we sealed into a covenant that began and was first announced to Abraham, but we're now sealed as possession of God so that Satan no longer has authority to operate over your life. And lastly, I think the fourth thing that happens when, when the Holy Spirit marks us and seals us as part of this covenant agreement between us and God is that he then gives us the power to advance the work of God, to advance his kingdom. You see, we don't just get marked by God's Holy Spirit so that we can build our kingdoms. No, we're marked by the Holy Spirit so that we can advance his kingdom, His name becomes greater because we bear his name. So the question that naturally leads me to be asked at this point is, have you experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you given your life to Jesus and God then placed his Holy Spirit in you to change you, to transform you, and to make you into a different person? The evidence of the spirit being in you is that when you do things that don't bring glory to God, there's that conviction. There is that that pointing, you should be going a different direction. And that's a work that you know is a work of the spirit, not the flesh. So you must believe and entrust yourself to the lordship of Christ in order to be marked by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, when we are given that Holy Spirit, then God empowers us to be faithful to his covenants. Then we can walk in faithfulness and be able to honor him as he is hope. And when we break covenant with him and we, we, we make mistakes, then that same Holy Spirit can convict us and cause us to repent and to cause us to confess and to work away from that sin and go back toward God. And lastly, my question to you in regards to the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit does not consider the earth his home. He doesn't. Heaven is his home. And so if the Holy Spirit's in you, it's never going to let you settle and feel like this is home. This earth, we are just meant to be sojourners here. Aliens and strangers, as as Peter calls it. Because God's making a home that is everlasting and eternal. And he's making that place for us even right now. So for those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we long for something greater. We can enjoy life here on this earth. I'm in no rush to leave this earth. But I'm also not feeling as if this earth feels like it's completely my home. It feels imperfect. It feels, it leaves me wanting. And that's the work of the Spirit in me. So in the same way, that circumcision reminded Abraham and his descendants that they are in a covenantal relationship with God. So too, Jesus understood that when the new covenant is established by his blood, that we were going to have a tendency to forget from generation to generation the work he had done. So he gave us what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. So that as we receive the blessedness of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we enter into that covenant relationship with Jesus, a new covenant. Then we are given the opportunity to pass this on and remember and give it an opportunity for teaching of generations coming after us after us, the work that Jesus has done. Look at what is said by Paul, the Apostle Paul in referring to that night in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this moment, we're going to make sure that we don't forget the lessons learned upon the cross. And that we will be able to pass on to the next generation. Each time we take communion, it's a teaching moment to tell them, Jesus has paid the price that could not be paid by us. And he brings us into relationship with the Father God. And this is a new covenant by his blood. And we do this as a proclamation. So if you have given your life to Jesus Christ and you call him Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate in communion with us, even if this is not your home church. But if you have not given your life to Jesus, then I would ask you to refrain. You are welcome to give yourself to Jesus now and then participate with us. But if you feel like you're not ready to make that decision, we would ask you to refrain and learn with us about this beautiful covenant. Having said that, I'm now gonna allow you an opportunity to prepare your hearts. If you do not have the cup uh, that you took, they were able to get on your way in the door, the ushers are now available in the aisles and they'll be able to provide you one if you were not able to get it on your way in. So now prepare your hearts for this moment of remembering. Jesus, we know that you took on the human body as the pre-existent savior. You took on that body as, as a humility, being the creator himself. You took on that body so you could be the one, that perfect lamb. So we remember you in this moment for how you lived in that body. Let's take together. Sometime later at the table, Jesus held up the cup, spilled with the fruit of the vine, and said this represents my blood which is shed for you, and this will be a new covenant. And we'll take this cup and we'll keep doing so until he returns. And every time we do, it's proclaiming his death, his sacrifice to the next generation, each and every time. And faithfulness, because he is yet to return, we take now. Thank you, Jesus. All glory and honor goes to you. You have been faithful to the covenants established with Abraham. And you continue to enable this narrative that allows for an everlasting covenant and an everlasting possession. Of which we are inheritors to the praise of your glory. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. You may stand.
3: children now. You are the same God. You are the same God. You answered prayers back then and you will answer now. You are the same God. You are the same.
0: hasn't changed. He's still the covenantal God that said what he said to Abraham, what he said to Isaac, what he'll say to Jacob, where we'll learn that in a few weeks, what he said to Ishmael and Hagar. The things he spoke are going to happen and are happening. His character has not changed. And he understands us and he recognizes that we are creatures that have the tendency to not be faithful but he doesn't meet us at our unfaithfulness by being unfaithful himself. Instead, his faithfulness rises even higher. And then he brings us into that relationship with him by providing a faith that we can't even muster on our own and gives it to us as a gift. And so we would love for you to walk out of this room having a newfound relationship with Jesus. If you'd like to talk with someone about that, we'll have people in the encounter room that's to my left on the way out the door. And I would be glad to have somebody, uh, there's somebody that would be there that would be glad to share with you about Jesus. And if you came in here this morning and you're just going through the motions of the season, you need to stop and just look and say, God, you are faithful. You are faithful. And forgive me for not proclaiming your name, but maybe being too much about my own name. And humble yourselves, lest God chooses to humble you. This is a privilege we have to bring the name of Jesus in a season called Christmas, where we can proclaim the coming of the Christ child that had been told as part of the covenants established by God with Israel. And then we are part of the recipients of that. And so we celebrate this season in acknowledgement of a covenantal God and therefore as faithful people. Amen?
1: Amen. God bless. Have a great week.